Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. If you're a student of Scripture, you like to read Scripture, and you do try to read from Genesis up through Revelation, then what I'm going to say to you today will not surprise you. But I want to mention to you how there are several places, actually it's more than several, but there are a number of places where we find what might be called a synopsis, a synopsis of God's dealings with B'nai Israel, with the children of Israel. In Egypt, and as the children of Israel came forth from Egypt, it's called Yitziat Mitzrayim. There are many examples of a reiteration of that. It's been called the most mentioned event in all of Scripture, and that is the deliverance of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, from Mitzrayim, from Egypt. It's mentioned over and over again. It's alluded to over and over again. And not just in the uh, Tanakh, but also in the Brit Hadashah. It's mentioned, it's viewed, it's considered, it's uh, brought forward to the people, it's used as a plea to the people, as a point of remembrance. For example, several of the Psalms, several of Tehillim, of the Tehillim, of the Psalms, the Zmerot, several of them recount the story of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. In Egypt, coming out of Egypt. There's one in particular, it's Psalm 78, that it's really not an easy read. If you know this psalm, you know what I'm talking about. Psalm 78 is not Psalm 23. We can all basically quote Psalm 23. Adonai roi, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, etc. And then it concludes with, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And what? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, Psalm 78 is not quite like that. Psalm 78 gets down to the nitty-gritty of Israel coming out of Egypt and God's dealing not only with them in the physical, but actually deep down within themselves. And by application, and I think whenever we read a passage of Scripture, it's a little healthier, it's more healthy to say, uh, how does this apply to me, than to automatically say, oh, this is meant for them over there. There should be some self-application of Scripture. You read it and you see, how does this apply to me? It's called application. And so often we do err in the sense that we read a passage of Scripture and we say, oh, they really need to read this. Well, they may, but what about you or me? <laughs> well, Psalm 78 is not an easy read like Psalm 23. It is a direct, I would describe it as a hard-hitting psalm dealing with much of what I just talked about. For example, just to give you an idea of how Psalm 78 flows, here are some passages from Psalm 78 beginning with verse 12. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, where? In the land of Mitzrayim, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the water stand up like a heap. And this just sounds so awesome at this point. And he made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with the light of fire. And this sounds so awesome. And it's an accurate recounting of what happened. He split the rocks into willows and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Then there's verse 17. But they sinned even more against him 
by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. There's an example of the flow of this psalm. The heights and the depths of this psalm. It continues in verse 18 of Psalm 78. And they tested God where? In their heart by asking for the food of their fancy, this translation says. They tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fans. See, yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? I just quoted Psalm 23. What does it say? Thou preparest a table for me. We're in the presence of the enemy there. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed down and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Verse 21, therefore, the Lord heard this, and this translation says the Lord heard this, and he was furious. <laughs> What's your picture of a furious God? And he was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel. It says, because they did not believe in God. And they did not trust in his Yeshua. They did not trust in his Yeshua, his salvation. Well, there's a little taste of this psalm, the flow of it, what happens. And as I mentioned, this is one of a number of sections of Scripture found also in the Brit Chadashah that recounts God's dealings with B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, in Egypt and coming forth from Egypt. In Acts chapter 7, some of you are familiar with that chapter. There we find Stephen at the Lion's Gate in Jerusalem in Jerusalem. He is about to be martyred. In fact, he is martyred by the end of this chapter chapter 7 of the book of Maseh HaShlichim, the Acts of the Apostles. And before he's martyred, there's a record of some of what he said to them. How can I say his message to them? There's a record of it. And there are approximately 35 verses in Acts chapter 7 that connect to Moshe, to Moses, that connect to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, and that connect to the Am Yehudi, the Jewish people. 35 verses of this chapter connect with those topics, with those ideals, those ideas. Among them, for example, is Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Stephen says, just before he's martyred at the Lion's Gate in Jerusalem, Stephen says, as part of his message, we're at verse 38. There are many things that he said preceding. He says, quote, this is he, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, Avotenu, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, the Torah, to give to us, whom our fathers, Stephen says, and he was Jewish, he says, whom our fathers, our people, would not obey but rejected. And then there's this well-known statement, which I would suggest to you to ponder this one, because we would be in error if we think it only applied back then because it still applies now. He says, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moshe, who brought us up out of the land of Mitzrayim, Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. At this point, and if you remember the text in the book of Shemot, Exodus, Aaron could have said, no, I'm not going to make an Egel Hazahav, a golden calf, but Aaron did it. He fashioned it, it says. And it says, we do not know what has become of Moses. Make for us 
God's to go before us. And verse 41 of Maseh HaShlichim, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, and they made a calf in those days. And not only did they make a calf in those days, Stephen recounts to his audience of, of Jerusalem, Jerusalem people, they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol. And then there's this. And they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And Acts chapter 7 continues on from there. So when we think about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, it's widely understood that the community redeemed from Egypt at that time under Moshe, along with Aharon and Miriam, his siblings, it's widely understood, and I think correctly understood, that as they came out from Egypt, they, they had many challenges to deal with. The Torah is not silent about some of the challenges they faced. There were both the outer struggles, call them enemies or yavim, if you will, but there was also the inner struggles that happened deep inside of them. And there were the social struggles and all that was going on around them. I mean, think about this large group of people. If we take seriously the census that we read about in the Torah, there were hundreds of thousands, some even propose over two million people involved in this mass exodus, the Yitziat Mitzrayim, the going forth from Egypt. That's a lot of people. And you know what? Sometimes just getting a hundred people together to think the same thing and to be kind to one another can be a challenge. Yet, as they came out, they faced so many challenges themselves that they had to deal with. They had to deal with and so many significant issues came up and I'm thankful for the Word of God and I, I hope you are also that you're thankful for the Word of God and, and beyond being thankful for the Word of God that you actually pour over the Word of God and study the Word of God and apply it to your life. See how it fits with your life. Ask the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to, to you know, engrave that Word in your heart so that you might not sin against the Lord, so that we might not sin against the Lord. But they face so many challenges, inner and outer challenges. Doesn't it sound like our life sometimes? Have you ever faced some inner challenges? <laughs> some feelings you had inside, some emotions that you were really dealing with? Maybe I'm the only one here in this room. Have you ever faced some outer challenges? Things that came upon you, sometimes it seems like they came out of left field and center field and right field and behind the plate in every other direction. And you face those challenges. Sometimes they come at the same time and they're there in front of you. It seems the testimony that we read of in Scripture in places like Tehillim 78, Psalm 78, in Acts chapter 7 and many other places tells us that Israel had a tough time coming out. Now, sure, they were a generation that had anointed leadership, and how many would agree that Moses was an anointed man? I almost said dude. <laughs> that too. Moshe was an anointed person. I suggest to you that Aharon, Aaron, was an anointed person. He was called of the Lord. Miriam, their sister, was anointed. We see her with the timbrel, dancing and rejoicing and knowing about worship and all those things. And that, that was just this one family, this group of siblings, the three of them. But they had anointed leadership as they came out of Egypt, but still they faced challenges. And by the way, if they faced challenges, what did the leadership face? Challenges gadol, you know, grande. Sometimes what was happening within the community would cause Moses and Aaron to, you know what they would do? Plop down on their face. How many of you remember reading in Scripture about Moses and Aaron going on their face because of some of what was happening around them? Yet they had anointed leadership, leadership that seemed to look towards God. Moshe certainly is an example. Over and over again, it repeats this phrase, and Moshe did what God said to do, something like that. He sought to obey. 
And yet, even this anointed leadership, and as is true with all leadership, I would suggest to you today, had issues at time. Moses smote the rock in his anger towards Israel. By the way, that didn't go over well with the Lord. Later on, the Lord says, you're not entering into the Eretz Havat land flowing with milk and honey. You're not entering in, Moses. You did not regard me as holy or treat me as holy before the people. And we've already mentioned Aaron, but Aaron formed an Ego Zahav, a golden calf. He formed it. He, he, he did it. There's been much rabbinical discussion trying to exonerate him from the action, but the more I look at the text, the more it, it, it stands out that Aaron actually was involved in that whole transaction of idolatry. And Miriam, well, I'm going to use the vernacular that we might say in the 21st century. Miriam badmouthed her brother, the leader. <laughs> She was unhappy, she badmouthed, and you know, if you've read through the Torah, you know what happened to her. At least at one point, she ended up a leprous and separated outside the camp. And it was the very brother that she badmouthed who got on his face and pleaded with God for her there. And it goes on and on. I mean, we're coming to a segment of, in the Torah, the parashot that are coming up, where we're going to encounter a, a, a person named Korah. Korah. Well, we may focus on Korah, but there were hundreds of others people that the, the Torah tells us they were people with anshe shem, reputation, people of name, leaders that followed in the rebellion of Korah. The end result wasn't good. Hold on if you haven't read that portion yet. We'll catch up to that soon as we read through our Torah portions. So there were whole groups of leaders in the hundreds. Anshe Shem, people of reputation and name, that rebelled and followed Korah, who was a Levite. And as a redeemed from Egypt community, as the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came face to face with some very difficult realities. Let me remind you of some of what they dealt with. You think your life's hard. Let me just give you an sampling of some of what the children of Israel dealt with as they came out into the Midbar, into the wilderness, as they left Egypt. They had enemies around them. There was harsh terrain. I've been down there. It is still harsh terrain. Now, there were daily births going on. <laughs> we love our hospitals and birthing centers and all that. There was, there was, that wasn't there in Egypt, out in Sinai. And there were daily deaths going on. There were no funeral homes, that type of thing. Daily, not every so often, but daily. And in some cases, as you read through the Torah, we're told that thousands died when a plague hit because of their rebellion against God. They had to, on a more practical level, they had to care for the livestock. And if you who have ranches or farms, you know that that's work. They had to care for their livestock. They had concerns about their future. It keeps chiming in. We keep hearing it as we read through the Torah and we listen to what they're saying. They're wondering about their future. They're concerned about your future. Have you ever been concerned about your own future? Most of us have. They had that going on. And then, in contradistinction... They kept living in the past. Oh, we remember how good Egypt was with its leeks and garlics and fish. And never once in the list of things they remembered do they mention slavery and, and all the subjugation they had and their loss of their dignity. But they remembered the leeks, the garlic, and the fish. We call that selective memory, but that's what they had. And they had that going on. They're concerned about the future and the past kept coming up. And people were getting older. They had to care for their elderly. And by the way, on the other end of the spectrum, they had to raise their children. Some of whom were born in the desert. 
They had to raise them. They had opposite things going on. Caring for the elderly. Raising children that were just born there. And then there was just the maintenance of the total social fabric within the community there. And you add that all together and many other things, it was not so easy for them. And I do think it's important for us to take a little step back sometimes when we criticize the children of Israel and coming out of Egypt, how they acted. We've, we must think, well, how would we have acted if we had the same things happened in our life? And I know we're all, and I'm being facetious here, blameless saints. But you know, when the going gets tough sometimes... <laughs> Some things come out of our lives from our mouths and our actions that we didn't anticipate, but they're there. And as they lived their daily lives, they were wandering in an inhospitable place with serpents and little scants, waters, everything. And there were even, at this point, some significant questions that arose for them that they had to deal with. They, they rose up from there in the midst of the desert. Questions they had to deal with, important questions. For example, how would justice be meted out among the people? And according to whose standard? Questions like, well, we have Moshe, we have Aharon, and we have Miriam. Well, what about after them? And of course, God provides Yahushua, Joshua. But that was a question, who's going to lead afterwards? That's part of what happens with Korach. He thinks he's going to be the leader. Why is Moses any different from me? And they also had to consider how would purity be maintained in the face of the constant life cycle events that by definition, these life cycle events that were taking place, that would, the purity that would be changed would change the individuals in the community. For example, what about handling the dead? If you read through the Torah, you know there are very uh, specific things said about handling the dead. What about the status of those people with issues of blood or those people who had, uh, with mitzorah, that sara'at, skin afflictions, so much of the Torah addresses that. How would they deal and interact with the neighbors around them who come to war against them? How would they wage war? What does war look like? They were an enslaved people subjugated to an Egyptian army and suddenly they have to defend themselves. What would that look like? And then there was the priesthood, the kahuna, the, the kohanim. What would they do? I mean, it became obvious, even from the Egla Zahav incident, the golden calf incident, that there were some issues there. That the priests, the kohanim, they were human beings that weren't exactly on the level of, you know, um, perfection. Here they were to continually offer the same sacrifices day by day, but yet they themselves had issues. This is really wonderfully pointed out in the New Covenant, in the book of Messianic Jews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 11, that addresses this and a few other issues concerning the priesthood. But it says in Hebrews, Messianic Jews, chapter 10, verse 11, it says, in every Kohen, every Levitical priest stands ministering, notice the next word, daily, and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. How do we know that? Well, they had to continually offer the same sacrifice. If it had taken away sin, then it would have been once for all. But they had the Levitical priests, the Kohanim, they had to repeatedly offer the same sacrifice day by day, and then, thankfully, we see the solution pointed out so deftly in Hebrews chapter 10. It says in verse 12, but this man, referencing Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, how long? Forever. sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Verse 14 is a critical verse, Hebrews chapter 10. 
For by one offering, Yeshua, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sacrificed. How many of you are thankful for Yeshua's sacrifice in your behalf today? Once he laid down his life for you, and if you trust him and believe in him, you connect with him. His blood avails for you. His atonement avails for you. In each of these circumstances I mentioned for the children of Israel in this what's called the post-exilic period after they come out of Egypt, each of these circumstances Israel had to reckon with, but there's some other significant truth that I want to focus and conclude with here. It's mentioned numerous times, but I'll suggest to you two passages that are found in the Torah. One is in Devarim, Deuteronomy, Kaf Gimel, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14. It says this, For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Whoa. Whoa. He's not some God who's way out there. But he, he te- the, Moshe tells them, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Now, I mentioned the concept of spiritual application of truth from the Scripture. Could that possibly mean that the Lord your God may be walking through your household? Through your workplace? Through your congregation? I think that's an apt application. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Notice this next phrase. Therefore, your camp shall be, say it with me, holy. The Lord is in your midst. Your camp shall be holy. That he may see no unclean thing among you And notice this next phrase, and turn away from you. And this idea, this concept, this truth is repeated continuously in the Torah and actually well beyond the Torah. For example, in Sefer Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, Kaflav 26, beginning with verse 12, it says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people continues the beginning part of verse 13. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Yeshua. I'm your salvation. I'm your Goel. However one wants to say, and he reminds them that that's who he is to them. Who is the Lord to you today? Is he your Redeemer? Is he your Savior? Is he your Yeshua, your salvation? That's an important question for us. Because it seems, it seems that, it seems, I would say even certain, it seems certain that many of the redeemed community at that time who came out from Egypt, many of that community, they did not realize that the presence of God was among them. They, they started getting glimpses of and pictures by some of his deeds and actions. And of course, the pillar of fire and Ananish cloud. They saw that. But they didn't quite get it. Because if they had completely gotten it, had completely changed them inside, they wouldn't have done some of the things that they did. Now, his abiding presence was the difference maker for them in relationship to the nations around them. And the word got out to the nations around them that there was a mighty God who was connected to the people of Israel. We call him the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, the great God of the universe. And this ultimately, the fact that he was the difference maker in their community. Ultimately, he's the difference maker in the whole world because there's none like unto him. In a parallel way, I want to ask you this question here. Do we realize that the presence of Yeshua, the risen Messiah, 
in our corporate and individual lives is a great point of distinction for us. I would call the difference maker. Some of us can look at our lives and see before we knew our Mashiach, before we had come to know Messiah, we can see what our lives were like back then. And then we can also see what our lives are like now when we come to know him. And the difference maker usually in that sense is Yeshua the Messiah. Now some say, no, it's my education. It's my craftiness. It's my great wisdom. Well, what will happen if that's the attitude one adopts is that it's called humble pie. Ask King Nebuchadnezzar, who I like to say, and I've mentioned him many times in this pulpit, <laughs> he ended up grazing in the grass. <laughs> but the Lord is the difference maker in your life and in mine. Let him be that for you. Call upon him, ask him. Implore him, seek him, desire for him. And by the way, allow him to be that difference maker for you. He's more than able to do that. Our community's name here is Rosh Pina. And as I mentioned purposely when we were reading the Torah, that that name was given to us, as I understand the story. I came a few years after that. But the name was given to us by Dr. Robert Lindsay, who's a known scholar in Jerusalem. Hebrew, Greek, English, probably Oki, other, other languages that he spoke. And it seems like he, he, he took that name because of his great understanding of Scripture. Particularly Tehillim, Psalm 118, verse 21 and 22. Here's where, what it says says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Evan ma'asuhabanim hata lerosh pina is the next statement in Hebrew. The stone which the builders rejected has become the rosh pina, translated in most English translation, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Yeshua is the center of our community. Have you noticed that? He really is the center of our community. It's the heart of our worship team. It's the heart of our liturgy team. It's the heart of uh, the members of this congregation. That Yeshua is the center of the congregation. We are Yeshua-centric, as I like to say it. I'm thankful for that. We are aware for the most part that he's the difference maker, even as he's been maybe the difference maker in your life. And how many of you can honestly say that Yeshua, Jesus, has been the difference maker in your life? My hand's up. He has made all the difference in my life. I once was lost and I was found. I was blind and then I could see. And I pray that for everyone's my passion that all of us would have a personal relationship with our Messiah, particularly our Jewish people, but all people, that would come to know our Messiah and re recognize that Yeshua laid down his life for us. That's a difference maker. He is the center of our community, and I'm also aware, and I mention it from time to times, of what Matthew 18, verse 20 says, because these are the words Yeshua said. He said in Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I also mentioned that during the Torah reading. Do you realize what that means? That the Holy One of Israel, Mashiach ben David, the risen Lord, where we gather in his name, that he's present with us. It, it does connect with the passages in the Torah that I read from Devarim, from Deuteronomy, that says, it says your, your, your camp has to be holy because the Lord's in your camp. Our congregation, our lives, and we're going to have our challenges. How many of you can say your life has had some challenges? I can. Maybe you can say my life is having some challenges today. I can. But then there's the cornerstone, Yeshua the Messiah. Is he the cornerstone of your existence? Is he the very center of your life? Do you look to him, your Yeshua, your salvation there?
And he's the center of the community. He's in our midst, and that's a sound theological principle. And I want to conclude with a couple of narratives. First one is what happened after the resurrection of Yeshua in Jerusalem. And it happened to an individual that has, I think, uh, unrightfully been called Doubting Thomas. Because the text shows us by the end of his life, he's not doubting Thomas, he's believing Thomas. Here's the difference. Here's where Yeshua, the difference maker, came in. The narrative's given to us in Yohanan, John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Yeshua came. This is a post-resurrection experience. Yeshua has risen from the dead, and he began appearing to certain individuals. Verse 25 of Yohanan, John chapter 20, it says, The other disciples, Talmudim, therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. Now, this text could go in many different ways. Thomas could have said, Yes, I'm so glad you saw the Lord. Or he could have started clapping, Yay! You know, it's real, it's true, it happened. But the text says this, The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, you would think that no one heard that conversation except those around him, but the Lord is in the camp. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. Don't think that when you leave the sanctuary and you go somewhere where you think you're all alone, don't think he's not present. Where can you go from his presence? Nowhere. It seems like Yeshua, the risen Lord, heard this conversation, experienced this transaction. And after eight days... His Talmudim's disciples were again inside. They're inside in a room, in a facility, in a building. His disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Notice this next statement. Yeshua came. Did he knock on the doors? No. Yeshua came, the doors being shut. And he stood in the midst. Do not think God is in, he, he's in the midst of his people. He stood in the midst and said, Shalom Aleichem, peace to you. And I would love to have this on video, this next thing. And you would too, be honest about it. He said, Shalom Aleichem to them, peace to you. And then he says directly to Thomas, he says, he doesn't say, you know, Thomas, I heard what you were saying in this club behind closed doors. No, he doesn't say that. He said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. And then he gives him the message of messages the one that resonates now to the 21st century, to all mankind, do not be unbelieving. Be believing. Don't go through life as an unbeliever concerning the Messiah. Be a believer in the Messiah. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And notice what Thomas does in verse 28 of Yohanan, John chapter 20. And Thomas answered and said to him, and you understand it more when you realize the transaction eight days prior. He said to him, my Lord and my God. It's as if he's saying, oh, you actually saw me. You heard me. You knew what I was thinking. You knew what my challenges were. And you met me. Only God could do that. My Lord and my God, and Yeshua said to him, and this is where we come in, 21st century Oklahoma City. Yeshua said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If you're a believer in Yeshua, my friends, 
rejoice, you are blessed. You are blessed because the Lord says you are blessed. You believe in him, you haven't seen him, and you trust him. You're blessed. What a blessing to be in the middle of an adulterous and sinful society, ever-darkening society, and you know him who is the light of the world. To be in the midst of a society that's thirsting for truth and you are drinking from living waters that only Yeshua can give you. Be in the midst of a society that's wayward and wandering, going everywhere it desires to go, and you know him who is the great shepherd of your soul. Blessed are you, my friends, if you're a believer in this Messiah, the only unique Yeshua, the Messiah. And by the way, to be fair, if you're not a believer and you're hearing these words and you don't believe in Yeshua, I think you can figure out where that leads to, where that leaves you. It's not the best place to be in life. Last passage of Scripture I want to share with you connects with this passage we just read from Yochanan, John chapter 20. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this author is Rav Shaul, Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. And he writes at the end of a very lengthy treatise, uh, an epistle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3, he wrote this, quote, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Yeshua died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, another name for Kepha, Peter. He was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom Paul writes at this time, interestingly, of whom the greater part remain to the present. They're still alive as I write this. He's like saying, you can go ask them about this. They'll tell you what happened. The greater part of these folks, these over 500 brethren, of whom the greater part remain to the present, it does say some of them have fallen asleep, which is not way of saying they've passed on. And then after that, Yeshua was seen by Yaakov, by James. Then he was seen by all the apostles. And Rapshul writes, and I think it's a very humble statement, then last of all, he was seen by me. Notice he didn't start with that in the beginning, say, well, I saw the Lord, and the other, like, he says, but last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. He appeared to me. I was, he saw me, I saw him. So besides clearly stating the gospel message in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we just read, Rav Paul mentions that Yeshua appeared to varying groups of different sizes as well as to individuals. And that's important for us. That means that he can work in your life as an individual and he can work within a community that nothing's beyond him. Can he be at work in your heart, in your life? He appeared to individuals. And as we read about Thomas, he knew exactly what Thomas had said and what Thomas had done. But he also appeared to groups, large groups, hundreds of people at once. Can he be present in a sanctuary that's gathered onto his name? Yes. And I appreciate our worship leader, Christopher. If you're here early enough, he will remind you each Shabbat that this is a holy convocation. A mikra kodesh. It's a holy gathering. That we're gathering unto the Lord, and the Lord is among us when we do that. He's the center of it. But did you notice the groups, the 12, the 500, all the apostles, but also the individuals that Yeshua appeared to, Cephas, Jacob, Yaakov, James, and also to Paul. 
Friends, Yeshua has not changed. He ever lives. He has not changed. He's still showing himself mighty. He's shown himself mighty to Israelis. He's shown himself mighty to Iranians. He's shown himself mighty to El Salvadorans. He's shown himself mighty to Americans and Canadians, and you just fill in the blanks. Anywhere where he's welcomed, if anyone will come to him, he will in no wise cast them away. That's who he is. I have three thoughts to leave you with here. Very brief. Number one, for you to consider these thoughts. Number one, in a world that's suffering from the decay of sin and rebellion towards God, the believing community, those who believe in Yeshua, the believing community is a relevant community because of his presence and his message. We are a relevant community. He is among his people, and his message changes lives. How many of you can say, the best or the gospel changed your life? My hand goes immediately up. Lord only knows where our lives would be without the intervention of our loving Messiah. And we should not accept being, in a sense, relegated by some in our society that tells us that our place is a place of silence and our place is a place of irrelevance. That's not true. Actually, the believing community is quite relevant because of his presence and his message. Number two, as we maintain our spiritual bearings and keep Yeshua the Messiah foremost in our personal lives and within our community, we are partnering with God for his purposes, not ours. I don't believe there's a wiser course in life than for a community, a family, a couple, an individual, an individual to co-labor with the Messiah to do their, his will above their own will. That's the wisest course in life. His will be done. It is the very best course for each of our lives to obey him and do what he says. And lastly, number three, and this I want to say to each of us here today, please remember that no matter what you face in life, and there are some big mountains sometimes, and some deep valleys in life. There are times where we think we'll never scale that mountain or we'll never get through that valley. But no matter what you face in life, Yeshua promised his people that he would be there. He promised us. You are not alone in your challenge. You are not forsaken in the midst of your challenge. You are not forgotten in the midst of your struggles. He's there. The best thing we can do is place our trust in him. Each day renew, renew that vow of trust. Each day that we face, that we face in life and we should fix the eyes of our heart. It's a beautiful concept to me. Fix the eyes of our hearts upon him. And please listen to this final scripture before we pray. Again, it's from the book of Messianic Jews, Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Will you repeat that phrase with me? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Please, one more time. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And because he says this to us and promises this to us, the next verse, verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Let's say that together. The Lord is my helper. Is he your helper today? Do you look to him in your life? Do you avail yourself each day and look to him and call upon him and commit your day to him, your time, your finances, everything that you do to him, your actions? So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What's the next statement? I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this day. Thank you for all the good measure you give unto your children. Thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace, your love, your compassion. Thank you, Lord, that you are mindful of our frames. You see our going in and our coming out, and nothing's hidden from you. And yet you declare that you love us, that you so love this world, that you sent your son, Yeshua HaMashiach, to lay down his life for us, to redeem us from our sins so that we might walk in newness of life with him as head of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for each person here. You know every circumstance faced. Lord, I pray that you'll intervene. You'll give peace where peace is needed, provision where provision's needed. And most of all, Lord, that you'll help us to trust you, to believe you, and to walk faithfully with you. I ask these things according to the merit, the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat. And we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.